Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise, and this is my first solo episode because my amazing co-host Annie welcomed a beautiful baby girl with a very full head of hair into the world and is enjoying some much-deserved time at home adjusting to her new role as mom. She will be back on the podcast when she feels ready, but I hope you all join me in celebrating the birth of her beautiful daughter. It feels really great to be recording again. Anytime we take a break, I'm reminded just how much I love doing this podcast. I wanted to let you know that we have some really exciting changes ahead for the podcast, which is why we took some time off to prepare before headed into season two of Case of the Sunday Scaries. We wanted to practice, educate ourselves for those upcoming changes, and I can speak for Annie and myself and say that we are really looking forward to continuing to grow and offer more ways for you all to listen and enjoy and support this podcast. We will keep you updated as always on our Instagram at A Case of the Sunday Scaries. But that's enough of the business side of things. Let's dive into today's case. Today, we are going to be talking about a truly baffling case. I have been Perhaps obsessively following this case from the beginning when the news broke that two children were missing from Rexburg, Idaho, I was suspicious from the start, but nothing could have prepared me for the absolutely wild, tangled, tragic web and radical religious ideology and multiple murders that would come to light. Today, we're diving into the case of Lori Vallow, her family, and the multiple victims she would leave in her wake, including her own beautiful children, Tylee and J.J. Vallow. Grab your detective hats, guys, because in part one, yes, this will be at least a two-parter, we will be taking a deep dive into Lori Vallow's life and the other key players involved. I will warn you, this case can be a lot. There is a lot of people involved, and we are covering all the key players today. So grab a pen and paper, maybe a second cup of coffee, and let's dive in. Lori Noreen Cox was born June 26, 1973 in California to Janice and Barry Cox. She grew up in the Mormon church, and I only mention that because her religious beliefs absolutely will play a role in this later. Lori had five siblings, older brothers Adam and Alex, an older sister Stacy, and another older sister, Laura, who tragically passed away as an infant. She also had a younger sister named Summer. When sharing these cases, Annie and I are always really careful to only share confirmed facts or statements and opinions of those connected to the case that can be documented and sourced. However, I'm going to go a little bit off of that today because I think in this case it's really important to include statements from people who interacted with Lori at all stages of her life to give a better understanding of who she was and how she became the evil monster we know her to be now. A childhood friend of Lori's who has chosen to remain anonymous said that when Lori was in middle school, Lori came over to her house and was really upset. She ended up confiding in this friend that Lori's older brother Alex was being flirtatious with her and wanted to be sexually intimate with her. Yeah, Alex, her brother. The only reason I mention this is because you'll see throughout the story the strange relationship between Lori and her older brother, Alex. Later, Alex's ex-wife would also give an interview with the police where she claimed that the bizarrely sexual nature of Alex's relationship with his sister, Lori, was part of the reason for their divorce. Whether these claims are true or not, and I have to be honest, I hope they're not, 
I don't know, but what I do know is the oddly close relationship between Lori and her brother would grow to have deadly consequences, with Alex doing anything in his power to please Lori. My interpretation from watching interviews with Lori's mom was that she was definitely the type of mom who cared a great deal about how she and her family looked. Not only their physical appearance, but what clothes they were wearing, what house they were living in, what vacations were they taking. The picture-perfect family, if you will. But Lori's mom was also a woman who really valued external beauty, and it's reported that she even put a lot of pressure on Lori to present in a certain way. Bleach blonde hair, just like her mom, no leaving the house without a face full of makeup, and every hair in place, and reportedly even forced Lori to go on a diet so that she could try out for the cheerleading team. I want to be clear here. While I don't think this is the healthiest way to raise your children to value external beauty above all else, I am definitely not saying that Lori's mom had anything to do with Lori becoming who she was, but I think it's always good to have an understanding of people's backstories so that you can see how those patterns are repeated. And Lori definitely took on this idea that her mother had, that everything she did needed to be presented in a certain way she needed to look a certain way, and you'll see that she uses her looks to really manipulate and kind of charm everyone around her when really she was up to some shady business. Lori was a pretty devout member of the Mormon faith, and she had plans to be a missionary after high school and attend Brigham Young University. However, that would change when in her junior year she met Nelson Yanes. There's not a lot known about him, but there's rumors that their relationship had been quite toxic from the start. Other students remember Nelson degrading and yelling at Lori in the hallways at school. The two married right after graduation when Lori was only 19 years old. I cannot imagine being married at 19. And the young lover's romance did not last long. They were divorced just a year later. Lori then moved to Austin, Texas and attended cosmetology school. I'm happy to say this is the only thing I seem to have in common with this woman. In 1995, Lori married a man named William. It's reported that their entire relationship was tumultuous, to say the very least, and she accused him of abuse many times. It seems she never showed up to the court hearings to move forward with any charges, so they were always dropped. This is unfortunately a pattern that we see a lot in abusive relationships. Someone finds the strength to come forward in the heat of the moment and tell police, but can't seem to find the strength to separate themselves from the relationship or out of fear from their abuser don't show up to court. With William, she had her first child. His name was Colby Ryan, but the marriage would be, again, very short-lived because it looks like they were divorced just a year later in 1996. I can feel bad for Lori at this time in her life. Being a young mother who had gone through two reportedly awful relationships at such a young age would be so difficult. However, after knowing the details of this case, it's unfortunately really difficult to believe anything Lori says. She is incredibly manipulative, she is a known liar, and she shows she is willing to say and do just about anything to save face. So it's very difficult, unfortunately, for me to give her the same benefit of the doubt that I would give anyone else who self-reported abuse in their relationship. And that makes this a little tricky to navigate and discuss because throughout her relationships, and guys, she had five husbands, it seems like for the most part, she had these claims against almost all of them. But we just don't know what is true and what's not when it comes to Lori Vallow. 
In 2001, Lori married the man who had become her third husband, Joseph Ryan, who from here on out, I'm just going to refer to as Joe. They married in a private wedding in Hawaii, which had always held a special place in Lori's heart. Her family vacationed there when she was young. And let's be honest, who doesn't love Hawaii? Lori became pregnant with her daughter, Tylee, and they together as a family decided to change Colby's last name to Ryan as well. And from the outside, they were perceived to be a happy, loving, supportive, successful family. Lori, like so many people, seemed to really rely on her religious faith to get her through difficult times. But in true Lori fashion, instead of religious teachings and faith being a safe place to turn to in moments of darkness, her religious beliefs seemed to have shifted during her marriage to Joe, with her beliefs really focusing on her, on Lori, being a special or chosen person. She said she had special abilities, powers, and had found favor with God. If there was a pick-me girl of faith, that's Lori Vallow. She began telling friends that she could speak with spirits and they would give her messages directly from God. She also believed her daughter Tylee was the reincarnated spirit of her sister who had passed away as an infant and that she could communicate with her sister through Tylee. This had to be so confusing for young Tylee. She's just sitting there playing with her blocks and then her mom comes over calling her by a different name, talking to her. No longer, you know, in the cute sing-song voices we all talk to kids to, but talking to her as an adult, that would be so confusing. In 2004, Lori appeared on Wheel of Fortune, which she said the spirits had instructed her that God specifically wanted her to do this show. I don't know about you, but I think God has bigger things to deal with than Lori being on Wheel of Fortune. I have watched the clip, and I have to admit, Lori appears to be a bubbly, exuberant person. She's gorgeous. She's someone you would want to be around, would want to be friends with, and I get why so many people were charmed and drawn to her. She won $17,500 on Wheel of Fortune, which probably only made her belief even stronger that she was, yes, receiving messages from God, that she was ordained by God to do great things. Remember how I said that Lori's mom put a ton of value into external beauty and Lori seemed to really adopt this? We can see that when Lori went on to participate in pageants and won the crown of Miss Hayes County, which afforded her the opportunity to compete for the Mrs. Texas pageant. If you have watched a pageant before, you know the different competitions they do, swimsuit, formal, and yes, interview. But when Lori was asked during the interview portion of the pageant, Tell us who you are. What makes you tick? Lori Vallow had the audacity to say, being a good mom is very important to me. Are you kidding, Lori Vallow? Seriously. A good mother? That is not something that anyone on this planet would call you. But here is where her response got a little strange. She continued by saying, a good wife, a good worker, but being all those things together is not easy. I am basically a ticking time bomb. And then did a creepy little laugh. Tell us who you are. What makes you tick? Being a good mom is very important to me and a good wife and a good worker. And being all those things together is not easy. So I'm basically a ticking time bomb. <laughs> I am sure this is where the judges laughed, the other woman in the room relating to the difficulties of raising children. But for me, this statement was chilling because she was a ticking time bomb. 
And when you know the trail of murders that would soon follow, ugh, it's just foreshadowing that nobody needed. After her short pageant career, the cracks in the picture-perfect marriage with Joe became apparent. Colby remembers that at first he really liked Joe, but as the days went on, Joe seemed quicker to lose his temper, and Colby seemed to be the focus of that anger. In a Dateline interview, Colby said he went out of his way to make a point when he would spank me and weird things like little hits on the head. He thought it was funny. He then in a quiet voice said he was sexually abusive as well. Lori filed for divorce from Joe Ryan and moved out on her own. The details of their divorce agreement were pretty interesting. In addition for child support for Tylee, it was determined that Joe must take out a life insurance policy on himself that would name Lori as the executor of the trust and Tylee as the beneficiary. I have seen it reported that the life insurance was between sixty-five all the way to $150,000. It's reported different in different articles. But either way, she had something to gain if Joe Ryan was not around any longer. So what's Lori to do now that her and her successful husband are no longer together? Well, she had her niece Melanie, just 15 at the time, come move in with her to help raise her children. I only point this out because Melanie will come up later in this case, and it's important to know that she was very close to Lori at a very vulnerable time in her life. Melanie had grown up in a really unstable household, and her mother, Stacy, Lori's sister, had passed away when she was just a young girl. Melanie would look up to Lori as almost a motherly figure at the time when she probably needed it the most. But what did Lori need? A man. Lori always seemed to need a man in her life. Enter Charles Vallow, husband number four. No one is perfect, but Charles Vallow seems like a really great catch. He was handsome, intelligent, and successful man, and the couple married in Vegas shortly after they started dating. Charles wanted a happy life, and you know the phrase, happy wife, happy life. So he was quick to convert and become a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints to appease Lori's desire to have her entire family involved in the church. In 2006, the same year that she had married Charles, Lori filed charges against her former husband, Joe, saying that he had sexually abused both Colby and Tyler, and a bitter and long custody battle ensued. Tylee denied when the court-appointed professionals interviewed her that her father had ever been sexually abusive to her. But as I said earlier, Colby still swears to this day that this happened. I don't really know what to make of this, and I absolutely will not say if it happened or not because Joe Ryan is not here to defend himself, and I won't make an accusation against someone who comes forward with sexual abuse claims. That's just not my place. I will say that the court system, detectives, and psychologists did not find any evidence that Tylee was being sexually abused. However, that does not mean it did not happen. I'm just sharing their findings. However, during the counseling sessions with Lori and her children, the counselors did note how deeply religious Lori was, and that she had even told them about her ability to talk to spirits and ghosts, and that she was able to receive messages directly from God. Now, I grew up in a fairly religious home. I believe in the power of prayer and that there is more to life than what we can see. Many people believe that God or a higher power has a plan for their life. But I have to say, I would find it a bit alarming if I was a mental health care professional when someone starts talking about going beyond these accepted doctrines and saying that they can talk directly to ghosts and spirits and are hearing voices and able to communicate in a conversational way with God. That would be a bit alarming, would it not? 
One psychologist noted in her statement to the court that Lori had mentioned that death would be an option before returning Tylee back to her father. Again, alarming, but I don't know if it's only alarming to me now because I have the gift of hindsight. Because if Tylee was sexually abused or if Lori believes she was, I can imagine any mother bear making these type of statements because you'd want to protect your children at all costs. Here's where creepy brother Alex comes back into the story. Lori obviously was very upset about the court's ruling in Joe's favor and called her brother Alex. On August 5th, 2007, fun fact, that's my birthday, but this isn't about me, Alex headed from his home in Phoenix to Texas to play protective big brother and come to the aid of a desperate Lori. This was not just some random day. Oh no, this was the first court-appointed supervised visit that Joe would have with his daughter. He had not seen Tylee in months. She had been kept away from him by Lori while the court proceedings were going on. When Joe left the facility where the visit took place, Alex was waiting for him in the parking lot. Alex approached him and was being verbally combative before saying, you know what you did, and this is for my nephew, and tased Joe in the shoulder. Like, who's just carrying around tasers? Joe runs away from Alex, who chases after him and then tases him again in the back, and Joe crumples to the ground. Joe cried out to onlookers to call the police, and Alex fled back to his vehicle. Alex was charged with aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, but was only sentenced to 90 days in jail. Three months for tasing someone multiple times and crossing state lines to do that. You would think he would have gone away for a lot longer. In early 2008, Joe was leaving the visit facility with Tylee and the person supervising their visit. And Joe noticed that there was trucks following him. He called the police and they escorted Joe, Tylee, and the supervisor back to the facility. But obviously everyone was very shaken up. That night, Joe called the police again and told them that he was getting harassing phone calls, warning him to not show up to the next visit or else. Later that same year, Charles and Lori moved to Chandler, Arizona, taking Tylee yet again away from her father. In July of 2009, Joe flew to Arizona to visit Tylee. When he did this, sometimes Lori would let him see Tylee, sometimes she just simply wouldn't show up even after he'd spent all the time and money to fly there. In an effort to be closer to his daughter Tylee, Joe packed up his entire life, switched jobs, took a huge pay cut, and moved to Phoenix, Arizona to be closer to his daughter. But of course, Lori was not really having it, and their relationship continued to be an ongoing battle. Joe's life seemed to really go dramatically downhill during this time. Over the next few years, he would turn to alcohol to numb. He was diagnosed with depression and anxiety and claimed that he had many heart issues that stemmed from the tasing from Alex. Lori's husband, Charles, had a sister who had a daughter. I know, are you following along with me? Basically, Charles's niece unfortunately had substance abuse issues, so when she gave birth to her son prematurely and could not care for him, Charles and Lori decided to adopt the infant boy named Joshua, or JJ as most people call them, around his first birthday. Tylee quickly took to her little brother and absolutely doted on him. JJ was autistic and had special needs, but it seems from all accounts from the people around them at this time, Lori was a loving mother and made sure that all of his needs were met, 
and was very patient with him and treated JJ like her own. In 2014, Colby graduated from high school and Lori said she received a message from a spirit that she was supposed to move her family to Hawaii. Charles, again the ever-devoted husband, took this message to heart and he packed up his family and moved them to the island of Kauai. It seemed that things during this time were finally going well for this family. No bitter custody battles being fought out in the courts and everyone acclimated to their new tropical surroundings. Lori got heavily involved in the Mormon temple there, even becoming a children's group leader, which again, in hindsight, ugh, I would not want her around my children. Three years later, however, the family would move back to Arizona, and it seems, based on reports from friends and church members, that it was around this time when Lori's belief systems really seemed to be branching out from the traditional LDS Mormon teachings. She was not only continuing to talk about being able to communicate with spirits, but she was talking about an upcoming apocalypse, and she was consuming podcasts and books about the end times. One series of books that she became obsessed with was written by Chad Daybell. Chad claimed to have multiple near-death experiences, but it was his writings about the apocalypse and end times that really captured the attention of Lori. Now let's pause here and introduce Chad. I know, there's a lot of names to remember in this case, but Chad is a major player, so let's take a look at his life. Chad was born August 11, 1968 in Utah. His family were devout believers in the Mormon faith. Chad attended Brigham Young University and graduated with a degree in journalism. He met his future wife, Tammy, and together the two welcomed five children together. Chad started a small publishing company where he self-published his own books as well as those by other LDS writers. This did not cover the bills of his growing family, so he supplemented his income by working as a gravedigger. Yes, you heard that correctly. Chad Daybell was a gravedigger. I'm going to read the little Amazon book blurb of Chad's book, Living on the Edge of Heaven, because there is no way I'm going to buy this book and give him any sort of profit. Quote, when Chad Daybell was 17 years old, he had a near-death experience while cliff jumping. He crossed into another dimension and realized there was a world beyond this one. A second near-death experience in his early 20s was much more in-depth. He was hit by a monstrous wave at La Jolla Cove in California. While his body was being tossed by the wave, his spirit was visiting with his grandfather, who showed him future events involving his still unborn children. This accident caused his veil that separates mortal life from the spirit world to stay partially open, so he often feels as if he is a foot in both worlds. As you read his experiences, you'll realize that we are all part of an internal family. We each have ancestors in the spirit world who deeply care about our spiritual progress and seek to assist us in our daily lives, end quote. Chad went on to write 25 books. Many of them focused on end times and what he was told would happen before the second coming of Christ. We'll get back to Chad, but for now, we have to travel back to Arizona because in April of 2018, John Ryan's neighbors noticed a foul odor coming from his Arizona apartment. Remember, this is Lori's third husband and Tylee's dad. Neighbors called police to have a welfare check done, and sadly, Joe Ryan was found dead in his bed. His body was badly decomposed. Lori had a very bizarre reaction to finding out from the police that he had passed away. She didn't call or notify his family, 
She just went to the apartment, collected the belongings that she wanted, and then let his body sit in the morgue unclaimed. When Joe's sister came to visit Lori and Tylee after finding out about her brother's passing, Lori was even bold enough to tell his grieving sister, the world is better off without Joe Ryan. The audacity. Again, there are very serious claims against Joe from Lori, but this is still his sister you are speaking to. But lucky for Lori, she did get that life insurance money, which was in her underage daughter's name. So basically, it was Lori's. Unfortunately, Joe's body was so badly decomposed that it was hard to find a cause of death. However, the coroner did believe he had died of a heart attack and his body was cremated. It would make sense if Joe died of a heart attack, right? We talked about how he had been under a ton of stress the past few years during this custody battle, having allegations, very serious allegations of sexual assault to his daughter on his name, and moving to Arizona, packing up his life, taking this pay cut, being tased by Alex. Like, these are all things that would cause a lot of stress to your body. I do want you to keep in mind the ruling of heart attack, though. Because while I have an admittedly far-fetched theory, in this case, truth really is stranger than fiction. So I'm going to pose that theory a little bit later. But I do want you to hear a clip of how Lori Vallow spoke to other church members about Joe Ryan. I'll just start by saying that I am a personal witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. I am his advocate and I am his friend and he is with me. Um, I know him. And it was a hard road to get to know him. It's not an easy road, but it's everything that I chose in the pre-mortal life that I sat down with him, and we discussed what I would have to do to get to to get to this point. I knew everything I was going to do, and everybody agreed, and I made covenants with all of these people that they would be play these parts in my life so that I could be here at this time. And it's a very important mission. It's something that I signed up for, so I have, I blame no one but myself for what has happened in my life. Um, when people hear my story, they're like, can't believe that you did that. Can't believe you lived through that. Can't believe that you're still here. But I have had some wonderful experiences. I have been ministered to by the angel Moroni. I have seen him. I have had lots of angelic ministry with people who wake me up four o'clock in the morning and tell me things to do. (laughs) I no longer need to sleep very much because I'm woken up constantly by angels and giving me instructions on things that I can I can do to help further the Father's work. I had um, it's been a long journey. I had a, there was a point in my life, there's a changing point in your life, right? You're a member of the church your whole life. I always loved the Lord. There's a turning point in my life that turned me to the temple. And this is what I teach everybody. And my change of heart was to the temple. So been married to someone who was very awful, who raped my children. And um, I had divorced him and gotten away from him. And he had joined the church. He spoke in state conference. Everyone thought he was wonderful. He was very good showman of all those things. And after we were divorced, um, he told everybody that I was this lying, crazy Mormon and got up in court and said all these horrible things about me and turned it around to where 
the judges believed him instead of me. And he was constantly trying to get custody of my three-year-old daughter and just to rub it in my face. And um, I went through a lot of years of, of this kind of hard stuff. And I was going to murder him. I was going to kill him, like the scriptures say, like Nephi killed him, just to stop the pain and to stop him coming after me and to stop him coming after my children. And I was just... I just thought I couldn't take it anymore. And I would go through the scriptures and find all the things, like if he comes against you once, if he comes against you twice, if he comes against you three times, then you can kill him. It says it in the scriptures. And the <laughs> I'm like, there it is. There's my answer. I don't want to do anything that's wrong. I did not have a murderous heart. I just wanted to stop the bleeding and stop the pain. And so someone wise was speaking to me and said, you need to go to the temple. So I went and met my bishop, and I was like, I'm either going to turn my life to the temple, or I'm going to commit murder. So do you want to give me a temple recommend? <laughs> and I was perfectly honest, because at that point, I had nothing to lose. You get to the bottom rung, and I had nothing to lose. And he gave me my temple recommend. With her nemesis out of the way, Lori could carry on her life mission of being a self-appointed spiritual leader and doomsday prepper. All of her readings and ghost chats have her believing that the end times are right around the corner and she joins a group of like-minded individuals called Preparing the People. In the fall of 2018, this group held a conference where Chad Daybell would meet Lori in person for the first time. Her former friend Melanie Gibbs said that there seemed to be an attraction from the start between these two and their initial interaction was pretty flirty, especially for two married people. In fact, Mr. Gravedigger Chad, who can see beyond the veil to the spiritual world, apparently confided in Lori that they had been married in a past life and Jesus himself had sealed them. To be clear, I don't know much at all about the LDS Mormon faith, but it's my understanding that their belief that a legal marriage is only for this lifetime. But if you are sealed in the temple, that marriage is eternal. You find each other in the afterlife and all of your kiddos with the person you are sealed with also will be with you as one big family arguing over who gets the bathroom next for all of eternity. The reason this is so important is Lori and Chad were married in Vegas. Theirs was a legal union. So along comes Chad basically saying, after their initial meeting, your current marriage will end upon death. You were and are my eternal bride. Lori apparently agreed full-heartedly with this sentiment, and she quickly got to work doing the first thing that cheaters always do, which is saving Chad in her phone under a different name. Apparently, Bishop Shumway was what she chose to not raise suspicion if a text or a call from Chad came through. Soon after this conference, Chad came to Arizona while Charles was out of town for work, and guess who he happened to stay with? Lori. But around Christmas, Lori told Melanie Gibb, again, this is her former bestie, that she had a dream that Charles was in a car accident and wouldn't be around by New Year's. When that dream didn't come to fruition, Melanie asked her about it, and Lori told her that it didn't happen because Satan interfered with the plan. Um, what? Keep in mind, Chad had claimed to be able to see through the veil of the mortal and spiritual world, but he also believed he could rank people's spirits basically putting them on a numerical scale 
between a light or God-fearing spirit and a dark, evil spirit. By January of 2019, Charles was more than a bit concerned about Lori's wackadoodle behavior and contacted the police. She had told Melanie that Charles had been taken over by a dark spirit and was no longer Charles, and that they needed to perform castings to get the spirit out of him. Chad and Lori claimed that the evil spirit's name was Ned Schneider. Interesting choice. Charles contacted the police and is seen on body cam footage to be incredibly worried about the mental health of Lori. Lori came in for an evaluation and passed. This would be shocking, but I don't think Lori is unintelligent. As we've seen, she is incredibly persuasive and charming and engaging and probably told them what she thought they needed to hear to get her out of there, and it worked. But if those professionals knew what was really going on in Lori's mind, perhaps some of this could have been avoided. In February, the day after Valentine's Day, Charles filed for a divorce from Lori. I read through the initial court filings, and I think it gives a very clear picture of what Charles was up against with Lori. Here's what it said. Quote, Lori Vallow has recently become infatuated and at times obsessive about near-death experiences and spiritual visions. Lori has told Charles Vallow that she is sealed, eternally married, to the ancient Book of Mormon prophet Moroni, and that she has lived numerous lives on numerous planets prior to this current life. Lori also believes that she was married to James the Just in a past life, and also lived as Mary French in the 1800s, who was Joseph Smith Jr.'s natural grandmother. Lori also informed Charles that she is a translated being who cannot taste death, and she was sent by God to lead the 144,000 into the millennium. Lori believes that she is receiving spiritual revelations and visions to help her gather and prepare those chosen to live in the New Jerusalem after the Great War as prophesied in the book of Revelations. On January 29, 2019, during a phone conversation between the parties and after their physical separation, Lori informed Charles that she was a god assigned to carry out the work of the 144,000 at Christ's second coming in July of 2020, and that if Charles got in the way of her mission, she would murder him. The next day, Charles was on a business trip in Houston, and during another phone conversation, she kept referring to Charles as Nick Schneider instead of Charles's name. Charles asked who Nick Schneider was, and Lori told him that Nick was Charles's real name because Nick had killed Charles and taken his identity. Lori proceeded to warn Charles that she would kill him upon his return home and had an angel there to help her dispose of the body. She also mentioned that she could not trust Charles and that she would not only kill him, but would destroy him financially. Since that conversation, Lori's communications with Charles have been rare and intermittent, end quote. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. That's a lot to break down. But Lori and Charles separated, and Charles took JJ back to Texas. After this, Lori pulled a disappearing act. She did not contact Charles or JJ. Later, it was discovered that she was in Hawaii doing Lord knows what for 58 days. 58 days, she did not have any contact with her adopted son, JJ. Oh, this woman. But I guess I do know what she was up to. She was flirting and carrying on with Chad Daybell. 
Chad had searched on the internet for June 26 star sign, which is Lori's birthday. And are Cancer and Leo compatible? I cannot make this up, guys. Now, I'm not going to fault you. If you meet a new person in your life and you're like, hmm, let's see, I have done this myself. However, this man says he believes so strongly that he was sealed to Lori in previous lifetimes, but he needed to just do a quick double check about their astrological sign compatibility. It's absolutely ridiculous. But by April, Charles really thought he could save this marriage, that maybe this was a mental health crisis that he could help and he decided to stop the divorce proceedings. He did, however, put some safeguards in place. He contacted his sister, Kay Woodcock, who is JJ's biological grandmother, and without Lori knowing, he made Kay the beneficiary of his $1 million life insurance policy. In June 2019, Lori and Charles moved back to Chandler, Arizona. But Lori didn't stop communicating with Chad, nope. She was contacting him this entire time. And sometime during this move back to Arizona, Lori told Melanie Gibb that Tylee, her own daughter, had also gone dark. Charles suspected that Lori and Chad were having an affair. He had been questioning and pestering her about this for weeks, and he had had enough. So on July 1st, he tells Lori he's going to fly to Idaho to talk to Tammy Daybell, Chad's wife, and let her know what the heck was going on between their spouses. This would prove to be a fateful mistake for Charles, because just 10 days later, a 911 call would come from inside the home Charles and Lori shared. That call was placed by her brother, Alex Cox. 911, where is your emergency? It's at uh, 5531 South Four Peaks, I think it's Four Peaks Lane, I'm not sure. You need yes. police or paramedics? Uh, both. I'm in mean, police and an ambulance. What's the emergency there? Uh, there was a, I got in a fight with my brother-in-law and I shot him in self-defense. Okay, let me get the medics on the phone. And is he hurt or is he alive? Or? Yeah, there's blood. He's, he's not moving. How long ago did this happen? Uh, a couple of minutes. Fire department, what is the address of the emergency? 5531 South Four Peaks. And is that a house in Chandler? Yes. And what is the emergency? Uh, I, I shot my brother-in-law. Okay, what part of his body is injured? Uh, in the chest. Okay, is he awake and responsive or unconscious? Unconscious. Okay, is he breathing? I can't tell. Okay, are, you wanting, are you willing to go over to him and check? Okay, do you just let me know if you see his chest going up and down? How old is he? It's not moving. He's 60. Okay, and are you wanting to start CPR? No, I don't know how to do that. I can walk you through it. Okay. And what I want to do is you're going to put one hand in the center of his chest. Yep. The other hand's going to go right on top of it. Okay. You're going to interlock your fingers, keeping your arms straight, and you're going to press down hard and fast into his chest. You're going to go okay. two inches down and fairly quickly. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Making sure his chest goes up between each compression. Where's the okay. gun now? Uh, it's in the other room. Just keep going with those compressions. Petey, did you have any other questions? Yes. What's your name, sir? My name is Alex. Last name is Cox. C-O-X. What's his name, your brother-in-law? Charles Vallow. And that is where I'm going to end today. I know it has been a lot of information. I want to give your brain a chance to process all of the characters in this tangled web. But trust me when I say this is going to get even darker. 
I hope you will join me next Sunday for part two of the Lori Vallow saga. But as always, until then. Mm-hmm.